Well, every so often I like to do some reading in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Have you heard of that? And every so often I like to tell you some of these stories. It's important for us to remember that the foundation of the church was laid in the blood of the martyrs. Countless men, women, and children gave their lives simply for confessing that Jesus was the Son of God and a world gone mad. One story comes about the first British martyr from the 3rd century named Alvin. Great Britain had received the gospel for many years without tasting any of the Roman persecution, but eventually the Romans came and along with them their persecution. Alban was originally a pagan, but was converted by a Christian named Amphibolus, whom he gave shelter to. And it turns out this guy Amphibolus himself was on the run from Roman persecutors, and Alban sheltered him, let him in. Well, the Romans eventually came looking for this guy, but in order to give Amphibolus time to escape, Alban told the soldiers that he was the person they were looking for. So they took him, but eventually they figured out the, the jig was up. And so they ordered for Alban to be scourged and then beheaded. However, on this occasion, upon seeing his sacrificial love, the executioner was so moved that he, on the spot, converted to Christianity. And then he asked permission to die for Alban or with him. He was granted the the latter request, and both of them were beheaded on June 22, 287 A.D. These are some of the more stunning stories when the executioner becomes a believer in Jesus, and then shortly thereafter, a martyr. And there are many stories like it from the early annals of the church's history. Such stories baffle many, though, and make them wonder, how's how's that possible? What on earth could possibly change the mind of an executioner so drastically that he would go from killing Christians to shortly thereafter dying as a Christian? That's about as radical a turnaround as any. There's only one answer to that, and it's the power of God. This is a life-transforming power of the gospel on display. When the truth of Christ invades your life, it turns everything upside down. What used to be good, you might now regard as evil. What used to be loathsome, you might see as glorious. What used to be worth killing for, now is worth dying for. This is how Christ can transform a person's life. And furthermore, this power of God is on greatest display amidst human weakness. Human power and resolve quickly runs out. But that's when God's power really shines. That's what enables weak lambs to be bold lions and to stare down the sword or the fire with peace and calm and confidence, knowing that God will take care of their soul, though their body may perish. And such displays of faith in the face of death, they're like settings of silver for the gospel, They let the truth of the gospel shine brighter. And often those around such displays are themselves changed. We see this happening first and foremost with the cross of Christ itself. Long before the martyrs, Jesus himself went to death for the sake of righteousness. And in his case, more than all, the power of God was displayed through weakness. Jesus wasn't weak. He was all-powerful. But he became weak. He humbled himself to the point of death even death on the cross. And though he was innocent and righteous, he allowed himself to be crucified, not merely to give us an example of love, but to provide an atoning sacrifice. And by that death, through God's same power, many more would be transformed. This is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus died to save and transform sinners. And with such power on display against the backdrop of of the weakness of the cross, it's not surprising to learn that it immediately affected people. People were instantly transformed by 
the cross. In fact, it is at the cross that we get the first story of a converted executioner. That's right. The least likely of suspects, the Roman centurion, the guy in charge of killing Jesus, he's the first person to be transformed by the power of the cross. Take your Bibles, open them now to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15. I have to say that after quite some time, the light is finally at the end of the tunnel when it comes to Mark's gospel. We started into Mark over two years ago, knowing we were in for the long haul. It was only last Sunday that we finally arrived at the text where Jesus perishes, where he breathes his last. After the work he came to do was accomplished, he gave up that final breath, and with it, the world was never the same. Now, through his death, the way to God has been open for all. Man had been separated from God because of his sin. But in dying in our place, Jesus reconciled us to God. The cross built this bridge spanning the chasm between us and God. And now Christ invites us all to come, to draw near to God, to cross over by faith. Jesus is the door. All who enter him by faith may come into God's presence forevermore. Last time we saw that reality pictured through what you might call some some living theology, some visual theology in Mark's gospel. Mark captures God's own testimony on the effects of Christ's death. Back in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, which you looked at last week, where Mark records how the moment Jesus died, what happened? The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I mean, the moment Jesus died, everything changed. Before, all were kept separate from the holy presence of God. But when Christ died, his his sacrifice was complete. Now all may be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and and enter in, enter into God's own presence once and for all. This is what the death of Jesus accomplished for those who believe, as we studied last time. But the effects of that death continue, and they continue on to the next verse, Mark 15, verse 39. We made the point earlier that because of Christ's death, the door to God has been flung open for all to enter, Jew and Gentile. And this next verse proves that. Mark 15, 39. The most unexpected thing happens. And at the moment Jesus dies, the first person to confess him for who he is. It's not one of the disciples. They're they're gone. They're long gone. It's not one of his relatives looking on. It's not even a Jew. It is this pagan, Gentile, Roman centurion. In fact, the executioner of Jesus. We just pause to think about that fact. It's amazing. There's a whole world of significance brimming under the surface of this one verse, Mark 15, verse 39. The confession of this Roman centurion that as Jesus dies, he says, truly, this man is the Son of God. And so today we're going to spend all of our time on just this one verse again. Now I know what you're thinking. It seems like at this rate we'll never finish Mark's gospel. We just go one verse at a time these days. But this is another one of those iceberg verses where uh, above the surface it seems insignificant, but just beneath the surface it's, it's massive and there's a lot going on here. This might surprise you, but what if I told you that Mark 15 verse 39 is one of, if not the most significant verses in all of Mark's gospel? I'm not just saying that try and play up this sermon. It's, it's, believe it or not, this verse may be considered the, the climax, the high point of Mark's gospel. 
You probably didn't know that. You probably never viewed this verse that way. But given the purpose and the flow of Mark's gospel, this verse, it's like the key that unlocks what Mark wants his readers to take away from his account of the life and the death of Christ. Now, I know I'm claiming a lot, and you're probably a little lost as to why this verse is that big of a deal, but just kind of stick with me, and by the end, I want you to see why this verse is so significant in Mark's gospel, and of course, what it means for us today. So that's our simple goal this morning, to once again spend our time just going under the surface with a really important verse, seeking its spiritual significance back then and for us today as well. Mark 15, 39. And just looking at one verse, we probably should start by reading the verse. It won't take us too long. And, and for the sake of a little context, why don't you start at Mark 15, verse 37, with the death of Jesus. A couple weeks ago, we studied Mark 15, 37. It says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the verse 39 says, When the centurion who is standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So we want to hone in on verse 39. The centurion guy, he watches Jesus die, and then he confesses, I guess he was the Son of God. Truly, this man was the Son of God. So what's going on here? What led up to this? Why is this such a big deal? We can start with some of the basics. Who is this centurion? We don't know his name. He was the commanding officer of the four soldiers who were present at the cross. But that's not all. The the name, the word centurion means commander of a hundred. So on most occasions, he was in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers. That meant he was battle-hardened, loyal to Rome, diligent. It also means this wasn't his first crucifixion. You've probably seen dozens, if not hundreds. But I would, I would bet this is the first time he ever confessed that the guy he just killed on the cross was actually the Son of God. Probably hasn't said that before. And again, when you just, just think about that, it's such a staggering statement for the executioner to realize that the guy he just killed was the divine man. I mean, what if you're, you're a prison guard, you're overseeing death row inmates? Would you expect the Son of God to come and be among those inmates and then die, and then you realize, oh, I guess that was the Son of God. It just sounds crazy. But that's what happened with Jesus. And first, you need to realize how it was no small thing for this centurion to get to the point of actually believing that this executed criminal, Jesus, actually was the Son of God. His confession is meant to stun you because that doesn't just happen. So naturally, our next question is, how did this happen? What led up to this man confessing that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, the first observation to make is that obviously this centurion heard somewhere that Jesus at least claimed to be the Son of God. That's that's why the Jews wanted him dead. But the way his confession is phrased, it's phrased like he's reversing his opinion. So at one point, he definitely did not believe Jesus was the Son of God. He had heard that from the Jews. He did not believe that. He thought Jesus was just another crazy Jewish false teacher. But by the end, he's reversed his position. And so he affirms, truly, this man was the Son of God. But where did he even hear about this whole business of Jesus even claiming to be the Son of God? 
Well, what we can put together is that he was most likely present at the Roman trial of Jesus. Roman trial took place in the Praetorium. That's where the centurion would have been stationed. He was going to be in charge of those crucifixions that morning, no matter what. So most likely, he was there with Pilate, overseeing the the final trial of Jesus. If that's the case, we don't know for certain, but if that's the case, then he would have heard the real reason the Jews wanted Jesus dead. Remember the real reason? John 19, verses 7 and 8 records, the Jews said to Pilate, we have a law, and by that law, he, Jesus, ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And if he's there, he would have heard that. The next verse, by the way, says that that statement made Pilate afraid. Pilate himself knew that Jesus is no ordinary guy. He was clearly set apart, clearly special in some way. Also, he had done nothing wrong. On three occasions, Pilate declared the innocence of Jesus. Still, he handed him over to die anyway. But if the centurion was there, he's at least intrigued by Jesus. This is not normal, not a normal trial, not a normal person, not normal charges. Still, though, not enough to change his mind at this point. I mean, there were many false Jewish prophets and rebels in those days that the Romans had to take care of. So at the least, he probably thought this is just another one of them. Well, as you know, Jesus is condemned by Pilate and he's scourged brutally by the Roman soldiers before being crucified. And here, for sure, the centurion would have been involved. He was the leader of that execution squad and that scourging was the first part of their execution. So he would have been there overseeing the scourging of Jesus. The other soldiers mocked him, put a crown of thorns on him, bowed down before him, all while the centurion looked on. Soon thereafter, his soldiers were driving those railroad spikes through the hands and the feet of Jesus and hoisting him up. But that's when I believe God was starting to soften the heart of this centurion. Remember verse 39? It says the centurion was standing right in front of Jesus. That's true for the whole six hours of the cross. It was his job to oversee and to give an account for the execution of these three men. He's had a front row seat the whole time. So during the six hours Jesus was on the cross, nothing escaped his notice. He saw everything that happened during those six hours. He heard everything that was said during those six hours. So just just think about that. Put yourself in his shoes, knowing what we know from the Gospels. What would he have seen and heard during those six hours? Well, it started off like any old crucifixion. His soldiers divided up the clothes of Jesus. That was actually a normal thing to do. But then Jesus made his first statement from the cross. And do you remember his first statement? Luke 23, 34 records it, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And in the context, he was praying that on behalf of the Roman soldiers. He was saying that primarily of them. And I bet that's another thing the centurion had never heard a guy on the cross say. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Also note in that prayer, Jesus refers to God as his father, implying he is the son 
And remember, that's something the Jews never did in prayer. They never referred to God as Father in their prayer life. All of this, I'm sure, is starting to leave an impression on the centurion. Anyway, next comes a period of mockery. Many Jews, including the religious leaders, were present to ridicule Jesus. They mocked him as the supposed Christ, the King of Israel, even the Son of God. Matthew 27.40 records how they mocked, saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So here's actually another occasion where the centurion would have heard that Jesus at least claimed to be the Son of God. I mean, they were mocking him for it, but nonetheless, that's what Jesus claimed. But then another remarkable thing happens. As the hours drew on, the centurion witnessed a change in one of the other two guys on the cross. One of these two thieves, he had gone from slandering Jesus to a little while later, he's defending Jesus. Do you remember that? This man had been humbled over his own sin, his just condemnation, but he knew Jesus was innocent. In fact, he even came during those few hours on the cross, he came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And he says to Jesus, Luke 23, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That's a huge statement of faith. And Jesus says back to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Here's another remarkable transformation at the cross. This is before the death of Jesus. Romans respected one thing, power. But is this not the power of God on display? I mean, how do you account for this radical transformation of one of these other real criminals on the cross to go from slandering Jesus to confessing him and entering paradise? This is God's power on display. Did the centurion start to wonder at this point, could this Jesus really be the door to paradise? We, we don't know. But through these events, I think the Lord was tilling the hardened soil of his heart. Things would only intensify, though, after the first three hours on the cross. As you know, the supernatural blanket of darkness descends on the land. Whatever that was like, I'm sure it was eerie, and, and the Romans were all about interpreting signs in the heavens. And what did this darkness mean? Well, three hours later, the darkness lifts, and it became very clear that this darkness was tied to Jesus, not the other two guys, but to Jesus. As the darkness lifts, Jesus breaks the silence by crying out. And thereafter, he says, it is finished. It's implying like he was doing something on the cross, like he had some work, some mission on the cross. I mean, what does centurion think of all this? Again, we don't know. But we do know he was taken aback by what happened next. Verse 39 says that it was the way Jesus died, the manner of his death, that directly led up to his confession that Jesus was the Son of God. Now we said before, what is the primary mode of death in crucifixion? It was a slow asphyxiation or slow suffocation. And death in that manner could take two to three days. But that's not how Jesus died. And as we learned from, from the beginning to the end of his time, he was still alert and strong on the cross. 
He also gave out several loud cries from the cross. That's not something a suffocating, crucified man can do. What was the cause of his death? Medically, we're left to speculation, but whatever it was, it came at the command of Jesus. He was doing fine. He could have hung there longer, but when his atoning work was done, the scriptures portray Jesus as commanding the moment of his own death. He knew the moment had come, so he cries out at the end, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Yet again, Jesus calls God his Father, implying he's the Son. And then he releases his spirit and dies. And again, that's not normal. That's not something normal people can do. You can't just release your spirit and die. You can't tell your heart to stop beating. You can't command your own death. But that's what Jesus appears to do. That's because he wasn't a normal person. This wasn't a normal death. And in verse 39, it suggests the centurion was starting to recognize Jesus was something more. He had seen probably dozens, if not hundreds, of crucifixions. And they're all largely the same. But Christ's death was absolutely unique. And he recognized that he was witnessing a touch of the divine. That's not how a man dies. That's how the divine man dies. So what gave rise to the centurion's confession that truly Jesus was the Son of God? Well, first and foremost, verse 39 tells us it was witnessing the manner in which Jesus died, the supernatural death and the power there. But there's actually more. What happened right next pushes him over the edge. This is recorded in Matthew's Gospel. But at the moment Jesus died, God gave other signs testifying to the effects of Christ's death. You remember the first one, the veil of the temple tore in two. We studied that. But the centurion, he wouldn't have seen that. He didn't know that. But he did see what happened next. He actually felt what happened next, and that was the earthquake. Matthew 27:51 says, The moment Jesus died, the earth shook and rocks were split. This all happens very quickly. Three hours of darkness lifts. Jesus cries out from the cross a few more times. Then he offers up his spirit to the Father and promptly dies. And just moments later, there's this massive earthquake. It's so strong, it's it's shattering rocks on Calvary. And as the earth settles, Matthew 27, 54 says, Now the centurion and those who are with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Again, he had seen countless crucifixions, but none of them ended in earthquakes. This was not a normal death. This was not a normal man. This is the power of God at work. And finally, his eyes were open to see this truth. This man, this Jesus whom they had just killed, was no ordinary man. He really was innocent. He really was telling the truth. He really was the Son of God. This is remarkable, isn't it? Just, again, think. For the executioner to get to the point of believing the man he just watched die was actually, truly, God's Son, the divine man. We're still not done. Take that, keep that. But this verse gets even more significant his confession, even more significant, 
when you really understand his Roman background and why his confession is such a big deal coming from the mouth of a Roman centurion. Let me put it this way. What would be more shocking for a person who grew up in a Christian home to confess Jesus as the Son of God or for, or for a person who grew up a, a staunch atheist to confess Jesus is the Son of God? Obviously, for the atheist. Why? Because they have to travel much further intellectually to get to the point of truly believing Jesus is the Son of God. It requires them to change their whole worldview, to see everything differently. And you have to realize that's what's going on with this Roman centurion. Not to say he grew up an atheist, but for him to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, it goes so radically against his worldview that it really testifies that his confession is the power of the cross already at work, the power of God transforming lives. Let me explain this Roman background. This man, he became a centurion just by his loyalty and diligence to Rome. This means he must have subscribed to what was called the imperial cult. What was that? Well, part of the evolving Roman worldview at the time involved viewing the emperor as a divine man. This began with Julius Caesar, who's the first to be officially recognized as a god by the Roman state. Caesar was unmatched in military might and prowess. He had a power that they thought could only come from the gods. And so it was natural for them to deify him. And so what they did is all the honors and all the worship that they typically reserved for the gods, they started giving to this man, Caesar, this divine man, Caesar. So they erected statues of him with titles reading the unconquered God. They put his face on coins, which back then, that was the first time that was done for a Roman emperor, not a god. He's the first Roman man to have his face in the coins. They renamed a month after him, the seventh month, named July after Julius Caesar. Traditionally, that was done for the gods. March is named after Mars, April after Aphrodite. But he became, see, Caesar was starting to be viewed as this divine man, all because of his power. That continued with the guy who came next, Augustus Caesar. When Julius Caesar died, a comet appeared. And so the, the Romans believed that was a sign of his divine soul. Well, Augustus claimed he came into being through that comet. And so he referred to himself as the Son of God. Again, Augustus wielded so much power. and He brought so much peace to Rome after so many years of war. They believed such power could only come from the gods. So the Roman Senate later gave Augustus the official status as a god and listed his name among the Roman divinities. The month of August was named after him, and so the Roman imperial cult developed. As the years went by, the imperial cult grew, and eventually it turned into full-fledged emperor worship. The Roman Caesar, the king, the emperor, was to be regarded as a divine man and worshipped as such. Now, to be fair, by the time of Jesus, emperor worship was not compulsory, but like I said before, we're dealing with a Roman centurion. And surely being a part of the state, he had already subscribed to the imperial cult. And what that means is, before the cross, here's a guy where if you asked him, who's the son of God? He would have said, Caesar. Who's the divine man? 
He would have said, Caesar, no question. Romans had no problem believing in a divine man like the Jews did. But the divine man was always associated with one thing, power. He had to have power like the Caesars. Power that could only be explained by the divine. This is why, actually, many Romans had a hard time believing that Jesus was the Son of God. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 1.23? says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, to the Gentiles, foolishness. And to the Jews, the fact that their Messiah could die was unfathomable. So they stumbled over the stumbling block of the cross. But for the Gentiles, like the Romans, it was more an issue of power. I mean, how could Jesus really be the Son of God if he died on a cross? And that's the ultimate sign of weakness. That's not power. Suffering is not power and greatness, it's weakness. And so there's no way the divine man came and then was crucified. He didn't conquer any territory, he didn't lead an army, he's not even as great as Caesar. So it's just foolishness to believe Jesus is the Son of God. But just take all that background in mind, and just now think about what it meant for this centurion to confess Jesus is the Son of God. And think about how that statement reveals this ultimate worldview shift. Instead of identifying Caesar as the Son of God, the divine man, he gives that profound title to this condemned, crucified, dead Jew. That's stunning. As commentator David Garland points out, in that moment, he changed his mind on a whole host of issues. What is true divine power? It's not the military might of Rome. Rather, he witnessed God's true power in the moment, the manner, and the aftermath of Christ's death. And that power transformed his thinking. It turned his world upside down. Witnessing Jesus on the cross transformed foolishness into wisdom and weakness into power. It's like 1 Corinthians goes on to say, we preach Christ crucified to to the Jews, a stumbling block, to the Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. At this point, you might ask, so did this centurion become a true believer? Well, the Bible doesn't outright say, but I think it's very clear that the gospel writers wanted and intended their readers to think that, to believe that. For example, Luke 23:47 says, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Luke pictures him as becoming a true worshiper. Now granted, he didn't know everything. He didn't know much. But the first steps of faith don't require complete knowledge. And I believe that during Christ's six hours on the cross, God was tilling the hardened soil of this man's heart. And when Jesus finally died and he saw the death, the seed of faith finally took root in the good soil of his heart, a seed that would only grow over time. This is how God works in salvation still. So put this together, I hope you can see this is a special passage, an amazing example of God's power, the power of the cross from the beginning has the ability to transform anyone, even the executioner transformed by the power of the cross. But we're still not done. 
Because there's even more significance behind this verse. When you next consider this verse in the greater context of Mark's gospel, you find that this verse, it's like a missing puzzle piece, which when you put it in, it completes the picture that Mark is trying to paint. Do you remember why Mark is writing his gospel, his book? Just flip back to Mark 1.1, just the very first verse of Mark. Mark 1.1. What's he writing about? He says, Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel just means good news. So he's writing to share the good news of Jesus. And that good news, it is tied to the identity of Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. There's no good news if Jesus is not the Son of God, the divine man with the power to make atonement for sins. But thankfully, Jesus is... And throughout his gospel, Mark gives lots of testimony revealing the true identity of Jesus. So look at Mark 1.11. First, God himself testifies at the baptism. Mark 1.11, a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. He is God's son. God also shows up at the transfiguration. Mark 9.7, and he says... At the transfiguration, a cloud formed, overshadowing them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So Mark records supernatural testimony at two highlights of Christ's ministry. As to his identity, who is Jesus? He's not just a man. He is God's son. God himself declared, this is my son. Speaking of supernatural testimony, the same comes from angelic beings. Mark 3.11 Mark 3.11 says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You, you are the Son of God. Remember that? Same thing happened in Mark 5.7. This is the demoniac. He shouts with a loud voice, What business do we have to do with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. We see many times in Mark, whenever the fallen angels, these demons, whenever they encountered Jesus, they knew exactly who he was. And they couldn't help but blurt it out in fear. You, you're the Son of God. God testifies, angels testify, demons testify. Jesus himself testified to his identity. Like we said, he referred to God as his own Father many times. Mark 13.32 referred to himself as the Son But it was not until the end of Mark's gospel, during the trial of Jesus, that he outright admits to his identity. Mark 14, 61, the high priest was questioning Jesus, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. So at all these key points in Christ's ministry, his fuller identity has been revealed. An identity which is essential to understanding his work. But get this point. Not up until Mark 15, or not until Mark 15 rather, has any human confessed Jesus as the Son of God. It's not come from the lips of any person so far. That seems odd. The disciples don't confess that Jesus is God's Son in Mark's Gospel. His relatives don't say it. 
Rather, the first time Mark records a human confessing Jesus as the Son of God is right here, right after Jesus dies. And the culprit is this pagan, Gentile, Roman, centurion executioner, the least likely person. Now, just to be clear, this is not the first time ever a human had confessed Jesus as God's Son. The disciples did before this, several others as well. But Mark doesn't record those. Rather, Mark's first record of someone confessing Jesus as the Son of God is right here. That makes you wonder, okay, why did Mark do that? And the answer is clear. This is the first confession tied to the death of Jesus. And that's what Mark is trying to emphasize. And we expect the disciples to confess Jesus as the Son of God after he walks on water. And they do in Matthew's Gospel. But remember the stumbling block of a crucified Messiah. Remember the foolishness of a dead Son of God. I mean, can it really be that the Son of God would die on a cross? Yes. And Mark records this as his first human confession in his gospel to show that the death of Jesus does not disqualify Jesus from being the Son of God. To the contrary, it was actually the death of Jesus that evoked the first confession that Jesus really was God's son. And so what Mark is trying to show with this one verse is that the death of Jesus was not weakness, was not failure, it was not defeat, it was victory, it was success, and it was power. In fact, it was so powerful, that death, that it transformed the executioner and called forth his confession that Jesus really was God's son. This is the power of the cross to which Mark is testifying. I mean, just think about the message of the early church. Hey, the Messiah has come, the Son of God, and he's this dead Jewish carpenter. I mean, that, that sounds crazy, but that's not the full message, and which is why Mark is writing. Jesus came and he died, but he's not dead, he's risen. And he is Jewish, that's true, but he's more, he's also the Son of God. And he may have been a carpenter, but he also worked wonders and he died on the cross to pay for sins. And that death was so powerful, it converted the executioner on the spot. So behold the power of the cross and believe it for yourself. Along those lines, Mark is writing in such a way that he wants us to make the same confession. He is inviting us to make the centurion's words our own. So far in Mark, we've seen Jesus heal. We've watched him teach and work wonders. Lately, we've seen him suffer and die. But that does not mean he is not the Son of God, like the Jews thought, but just the opposite. The purpose, the manner, the aftermath of his death actually proves he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and that his death worked. Like the centurion said in, in Luke's gospel, he was innocent. Jesus was innocent. He was telling the truth about everything. And that reality comes to be sealed and stoned upon his resurrection, which comes shortly. But for now, I hope this gives you this greater appreciation of this relatively obscure verse of the Bible, Mark 15:39. It carries just a greater significance than meets the eye. Here is this special, unique testimony to the meaning and power of the cross. A power which comes only when you rightly identify the one who died on that cross. 
But this power can convert even the one who literally killed the Son of God. And that actually gives us an encouragement for today, how this verse speaks today. Just think about that fact. After all this centurion did to Jesus, the Son of God, that God still had mercy on him. I mean, this guy, he knew Pilate found Jesus innocent, yet he still executed Jesus anyway. He had Jesus brutally scourged and tortured, oversaw, looked on with approval as he was nailed to the cross unto death. Yet none of that disqualified him from later finding God's mercy and forgiveness. So from the centurion, we actually get a taste of what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished on the cross. If this centurion's sins can be forgiven, if that guy can be forgiven and shown mercy, then I'm pretty sure anyone's sins can be forgiven and they can be shown mercy. We said last week that the death of Jesus opened the way to God for all, Jew and Gentile, and that's true. But even more so, he proves that the way to God is open for all in more ways than one. The guilty, the murderers, the adulterers, the sexually immoral, or even just the angry, the belligerent, the lustful, the impatient, all can find mercy and forgiveness at the cross. All need it, for all have sinned, great or small, it doesn't matter, all have fallen short of God's glory. But the centurion shows that from the moment the death was finished, the power is there to transform and free and forgive even the most guilty. Recall 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It says they won't. And do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But verse 11 says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That's all of us. We all come as unrighteous, guilty sinners. But if you come by faith, there's power at that cross to transform you. So look upon Jesus as crucified, condemned, killed, Jew, risen. Confess him as the Son of God. Make him Lord over your life and live in the renewed power that he gives you to live. And from this passage, don't forget where that power lives. Lives at the cross, lives in the gospel. We started talking about the first persecution that came to Britain in the third century. In America, we've not known real Christian persecution. We've still not tasted that level of Christian persecution. But I think all of us here would not be surprised if that day came in a generation or two. So we wonder, how can Christians live for Christ in such days? How can Christians die for Christ? How can our, our one-day executioners be transformed? Same power. The power is still there, the power of the cross. So remember that power, live by that power, die by that power, as you confess Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God.
Let's pray. Lord God, we do confess that power now, the power of the cross, that you would give your son for us, like the song goes, Lord. Thank you for your gift, your greatest gift of redemption for us, and the power that came through him, the power to transform lives. That's why Jesus died. That's why he allowed himself weakness to show a greater power, a power over sin, a power over Satan, a power over death itself. And he testified to that when he rose from the dead. Lord, we believe, we confess ourselves that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing we have life in his name. For any here who do not believe, Lord, convict and pierce their hearts. Like the centurion, I pray you till their heart and soil that the seed of the good news of Jesus would take root and they would live and they would bear fruit for you. Convict them and draw them to yourself. For us who believe, we want to leave strengthened in our faith and our conviction that despite a world turning against you again, we, we still believe. We will cling to the cross and to that power in our faith. Whether we live or die by it, we, we will cling to it, Lord. So embolden us in the power of the cross, which Jesus provided, that we might live boldly for you until we see you. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you for the power of the cross. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.